Again, we're going to look at a couple of different Gospels this morning when we think about um, the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, I want to start with just some comments. Uh, Mark fifteen twenty says this. We ended here last week about uh, Jesus' trials and the beating that he took and the mockery and all those things. And verse 20 says, And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Uh, previous to this, it's re- recorded in Matthew 13, uh, Jesus said, listen to this, that many prophets and righteous men and women desired to see what you see and hear what you hear. Now here's Jesus in the flesh talking to his disciples, and he's saying that in the past, the prophets and righteous people, those who love the Lord, they desired to see what you're seeing. And what were they seeing? They were seeing the incarnation of God himself. They were seeing the final revelation of salvation. Uh, They may not have fully understood it, but that's what they were seeing, and they're going to understand more as time goes on. And this morning, when we come to the crucifixion of Christ and thinking about what Jesus said about these prophets in the past uh, and what they desired to see but had not seen. And I want to read to you, and this is not going to be on the screen, but I want to read to you out of Psalm 22, and, and you're going to be familiar with it. And it is a prophecy of what we're going to study this morning about the crucifixion of Christ. Listen to what you hear and then what happened in the life of Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, my God, I cry the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season and am not silent, but you are holy enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were uh, delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot at the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him, the Lord, deliver him since he delights in him. But you are But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is nigh, and there is none to help. Listen, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Basham have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my, bones, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. It's, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. 
But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. All my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. So what the psalmist is describing is a crucifixion. And we see that now in the life of Christ. So this is what the prophets had desired to see is that the exaltation of Christ. When they, when, when they prophesied about Christ, so we're, we're going to read it in Peter. And let, let me read this, Peter. This is not going to be on the screen either. But I'll, I'll just tell you what Peter, Peter wrote. He said, of this salvation. Now, he, Peter's writing after the fact, but he's looking back at prophecy. And he said, of this salvation, speaking about the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the salvation that comes through Christ, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what matter of time, the Spirit of Christ who was in them, the Spirit of Christ who was in the prophets, and they were indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So he, he is saying that the Spirit of God, before any of this happened, testified through the prophets about salvation. But they, they didn't understand it. The prophets, the prophets saw the glory of the Messiah, and they saw the suffering of the Messiah, but they saw it like two mountaintops. They couldn't see the valley in between. And they saw it like two mountain peaks, and they didn't understand it. They didn't understand how God could anoint His Son, and He would suffer. He'd be a suffering servant. What we just read in Psalm 22. They couldn't comprehend it. And to tell you the truth... Except by the Spirit of Christ, no one could. We couldn't ever comprehend it. That this would happen and God would allow it to happen and he himself would pay the price for our salvation. It is a miracle and it is something that cannot be comprehended outside the Spirit of God in our life. So the prophets had prophesied it. Peter said that they were looking forward to the time that would come. They didn't understand the time that come. But when we get to Mark chapter 15 and verse 20, the time has come. The time has come. The hinge point of all of history, Christ is going to be crucified. The word crucified literally means hung on a tree. It literally means nailed to a, 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 a beam. It, it, that's, that's literally what it means. Now, the word encompasses all the day, and it encompasses all the pain and all the agony. It encompasses all that. But it, it literally means nailed to a tree. So we read this uh, that about the time of Christ's coming. Again, in our text in, in Mark, in chapter 15 and verse 21. Then they compelled a certain, they're leading him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, uh, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out, of the, coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Simon was probably, uh, Cyrenian is out in North Africa. He was probably coming to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover. And uh, they, they uh, there's a lot of detail we don't have time for. The Romans couldn't, the Romans wouldn't compel another Roman to do that, and they, they could compel a Jew, but it would be a to a Jew. So they picked this guy they know is not a Jew, not a Roman, 
and he's to bear Christ's cross, that just be the, the, the side beam, the, the, the tall beam would already be there, uh, as what's regularly happening, and, and, and Christ would be bearing that, he couldn't even bear it, probably 75 to 100 pounds, and he was so weak from being flogged and, 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 and hadn't eaten in two days, uh, probably hadn't drank anything in two days, so he couldn't bear his own cross beam, and so they compel someone to bear it for him. And this man is going to be named, his, his son Rufus is going to be named in the book of Romans. So maybe, you know, when you just think about what happens, maybe this man, it was a providential time in his life, and he would not have enjoyed carrying that cross. It would have been a shame and embarrassment for him. But maybe in doing that, he met Christ and, and trusted in him, and then his sons end up in the church, and he himself ends up in the church. We don't know that for sure, but there's an indication that it's true. I like to think that it's true. That's how God works. Uh, he uses our pain and our agony uh, and the things that we suffer. He uses those for his glory and our good. Uh, we don't know it when it's happening. It doesn't feel like it when it's happening, but it changes us and molds us and causes us to trust Christ in a greater way. So on the way to Calvary, and if you read in the book of Luke, and chapter 23, we, I don't know if I gave you that or not. Luke chapter 23, verse 27-31. Jesus has an interaction with women who are coming along, and they're lamenting him. And, and he says to them, don't lament me, but if these things happen in a green wood, what's going to happen in the dry? And by saying that, he's saying, him being the green wood, he's speaking about that he is innocent of wrongdoing. And a dry wood would mean that people literally have sins that have to be atoned for. And he's saying, if this punishment comes to me and I'm innocent of wrongdoing, you need to lament for yourselves. And he's speaking to them, I believe, about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the coming destruction of their nation. And they don't understand. They lament him going to the cross. And there are a lot of uh, women, especially, uh, who would minister to those who went to the cross. And they would, they would bring the gall or the sour wine with the myrrh in it to help stupefy the person, to help the person be numbed to, to go to the cross. They had, they had a caring heart. And they lamented what was happening, not just because it was Jesus, these particular women, but he, they, they cared about uh, all of those who were crucified. You read in Luke chapter 23, there were two criminals led with him. Uh, they were robbers. They were common thieves is what they were. And then we read about the crucifixion itself in Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 24. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. I'm just astounded that this is the, the hinge point of theology. Uh, theology is the study of God. This, this is the hinge point of history. This is the hinge point of theology. And the, the Holy Spirit had these people say it in a few words. It's just, it's just they crucified him. They, that's it. They crucified him. It's just a few words, one, one verse. And the other Gospels have maybe a couple of verses. And so it's just very, it's very brief. 
It's almost like God wants to shroud it. We're going to read it in a moment. He did shroud Christ taking this, our sin upon himself. He did shroud that in darkness. Uh, and there was darkness over the land for three hours. But when, when we read this, we think they just crucified him. It wasn't such a, a, a significant thing. But it was the most significant thing that ever happened in the history of mankind. Uh, it wasn't Adam eating the apple. It wasn't uh, whatever you want to name. It wasn't that. This was it. This was the a human person who was dying on behalf of, of all those throughout history who would trust in him for the forgiveness of sin. It's just an astounding thing that they just mention it and in, in like, almost like it's in passing. They crucified him. They nailed him to the tree. I want to think about the theology for, for just a moment. It's easy sometimes for us to focus on the details. I thought about giving you a little bit of history about crucifixion. Let me give you a little history of crucifixion. The, the Romans didn't start it. They developed it. Uh, they used it as a deterrent for criminals. Uh, they had never crucified Roman citizens. They had only crucified people who were not Roman citizens. Um, and, and so they put you on a main road going into a city, whether it was Jerusalem or another city, and it would be a warning that you defy Rome, this is what happens to you. You're a malefactor, this is what happens to you. So behave yourself, obey the Roman law, don't, don't be a rebel in any sense because this is what happened to you. When, when they hung a person on the cross, they would put the nails through their wrists, uh, not through their hand, not through the palm, but through their wrist, and the palm would just rip out. So they'd put it through their wrist, and then they would bring their feet up and put the nails through their feet, and they wouldn't be stretched out, but a person's knees would be bent, and you'd already been flogged, Christ had already been flogged, and now he, they lay him on the ground and, 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 and put that bar, uh, to, tie him to that bar, and then nail him, and, and the dirt would get in his wounds, and now to breathe, when you're hanging there, you can breathe in, but you can't breathe out. And he would have to push against his feet and lift himself up and pull against those nails and bend his elbows and pull against the nails to lift himself up to exhale. And imagine the pain. If you have nails through your feet and you're pushing against those nails and you're lifting yourself up to exhale. And then there's the insects and then there's the torment and all the the mockery that is going on. And it is an agony. It's an agony. And most people, it took them, uh, unless they went into shock or unless their heart gave out, uh, they died of asphyxiation. At some point in time, they would become too weak to push themselves up to exhale, and they would die from that. It was the most cruel, vicious punishment that's ever been invented. And that's what God chose for his son to go through. It wasn't just that he'd be killed, but he would be crucified and pay the penalty of our sin. And it would happen to him so that there would never be anything that happened to me or you that he didn't understand. Many of us have gone through painful experiences. I'm not just talking about physically, but I'm talking about emotionally. I'm talking about um, we, we go through painful experiences where people reject us or what, whatever you may want to think about in your life. And we, we go through ter- terrible 
lonely, painful experiences, but nothing like Christ experienced. Nothing like Christ experienced. And he understands it, and he did it for you. He did it for me. He, he did it that he might empathize, empathize be, have empathy for us, and that he could understand and comfort us in our suffering and give us hope in our suffering. See, that's, the, that's, the, that, that, that's just the human aspect of, of what he did for us. Here's the theology of what he did for us. To crucify means to nail to a tree. And Galatians chapter 3 tells us that in verse 13 and 14, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham, I'm going to take out, I'm going to take out the phrase, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and go back to the, the whole sentence. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now what's the curse of the law? The curse of the law is that when I break God's moral law, whether I'm a Jew or whether the law is just written on my heart as a Gentile, when I break God's moral law, I am condemned to an eternity of judgment. That's the curse of the law. Uh, it's an eternity of, of judgment if I am not right with God. And then he says, but he redeemed us from the curse of the law that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So this is the theology of the cross. It was that we might receive the promise of grace made to Abraham. Remember the, remember the promise made to Abraham? Is that through him, all the nations of the earth, not just the Jews, because they haven't been developed yet, they're going to be developed through Abraham, but not just the Jews, but all the earth, all, all people of all kind, all ages, uh, all, all persuade that all people have an opportunity to know Christ, by know God through grace. See, that's the promise made to Abraham. And how does that promise come through? It comes through Christ on the cross. It comes through him nullifying the curse of sin for those who would believe. That is the highest theology that there is. That Christ is the Savior. He has always been the Savior. He is the Son of God, the Savior. His name shall be called Jesus, the Savior. That's what he does. That's who he is. And it's really interesting to me that the first person who was saved after the crucifixion was the Roman centurion. He was a Gentile. This Gentile said... Surely that was the Son of God. See, that's salvation. That, surely he is the Son of God. He is who he said he was. He, he did do this outside of himself. When we read here, I don't remember how far down we read. Uh, verse 24, they divided his garments. That's the fulfilling of Scripture. We read that in Psalm 22. Uh, and then verse 26, the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. Other gospels tell us it was written in three common languages. It was written in Latin and Hebrew and in Greek. And the, the priest protested it, but Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And God is testifying to the world that this, my son, is the king of the Jews. And, and, and they didn't want to testify to that, but... God caused Pilate to write that and testify to the world that this is the king of the Jews. 
And then in verse 27 and 28, we read this. And with him they also crucified two robbers, one on the right, the other on the left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And we read in John's gospel that one of them, they both reviled him at the beginning. They mocked him. And then one of them came to the realization that he was not guilty and he was innocent. And he trusted in Christ. And Christ said to him, if you remember, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is the intermediate abode of the saved and the lost, even though they're separated by a great gulf, fixed, until Christ ascends into heaven. And, and then they will, those who are in paradise in the saved area will ascend into heaven with him at, at that time. And so he promises this thief who was undeserving, uh, but he trusted in him by grace. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It's really interesting. Then we have the mockery of the crowd, verse 29. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Oh, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said he saves others himself. He cannot save. And that's a testimony as well. He saves others. And he saves others because to do that, he could not save himself. To do that, he had to bear. And and when you think about the crucifixion, I, I wish you'd think more. I want to think more about the agony of carrying our sin and being made sin for us, it says in Corinthians chapter 5, being made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him, that was much more painful than the human aspect of dying, which I'm not mitigating that at all. That was very unbelievable, unimaginable. But there have been thousands of people who have been crucified, but only one who, who willingly did that and along with the physical crucifixion bore the rejection of God totally and we don't understand that. We can't understand what that was like. He bore this mockery. Remember we read in Psalm, they gaped at me with their mouths. They're like bulls of Basham. Uh, They're like wild dogs. They, They gaped at him. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So at noon, there's darkness over the land. For three hours, there's darkness over the land. And when you think about this is midday, um, and, and, and it would be a total miracle for there to be darkness over the land. When you go back into Genesis, and you remember when God made a covenant with Abraham, he told Abraham to take those animals, and Abraham split them, and he, he laid them, I, I guess I assume in a row, and he waited and he showed, shooed away the birds and things that would want to eat the carcasses. And, and God came in the darkness 
and, and walked between them and accepted that sacrifice and made a covenant with Abraham. But, but it's described, the darkness is described there as horror. It's horrifying. And, and can you imagine that you lived in Jerusalem and you were there for the feast and you may or may not known what was going on with Jesus, probably didn't. And all of a sudden in the middle of the day, your celebration is interrupted with total darkness. Total darkness. You know, we don't, we don't ever experience total darkness. We have nightlights. We have electricity. We, we have whatever. But total darkness is frightening. Total darkness makes you completely helpless. You can't function in total darkness. Now I'm talking about total darkness. You don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You don't know. You can't pick up anything. You don't know where it is. You're disoriented. Um, you, it's just, you become completely helpless and frightened in total darkness. And this happened for three hours in the land. God would not let the world see Christ bear our sin. God would not let the world see when he was rejected of the Father because he was made sin for us. And I, I've said to you the last few weeks, there's just, we can't understand that. We, we can never grasp because this is deity with deity. And, and this is God's plan from eternity past and, and he was fulfilling it, and Christ was willing to do that, understanding in the garden the agony that was going to, with, with, with agony, what was going to happen to him. He understood he was going to be rejected by the Father. That's what grieved him so. That's what he agonized over. And yet he said, if possible, take this cup away from me, but if not, then give me grace to endure this cup. And I'm paraphrasing, but... But see, that's, that's the crucial thing of the whole event, is that he was made sin. Not just my sin, but sin for every person who would trust in him from the beginning of Adam all the way until, until the millennial kingdom ends and the great white throne of judgment and the new heaven and the new earth begins and sin is no longer. He just made, he bears every person's sin. Every evil, wicked thought we've had, every evil, wicked desire we've had, he bore that. And yet he's holy. He's holy. It was a, it was a rebuke to his very nature to bear that. That's why God rejected him. And he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew Why? But he's crying out, he's, he's crying out what we read in Psalm 22. He is fulfilling his role as Savior. That, you can't get higher theology than that. I hope you understand that. I hope you think, when you think occasionally about your sin, and, and I hope it makes you so grateful that Christ forgave you. He paid the highest price possible. And he forgave you. Willingly, freely forgave you. I don't know about you. We have a hard time forgiving each other. <laughs> Are you aware of that? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Maybe sitting by your spouse. 
But we just have a hard time. We don't want to forgive. We want our pound of flesh. We, we want some retribution. We want things evened out. Do we not? Is that right? <laughs> even, even on our best day, maybe we don't. But, you know, but that's our nature. See, that's part of our fallen nature. But Christ didn't do that. He, he willingly, freely took your sin upon himself and will never reproach you because of it. God will never reproach you. One day we will stand in the presence of God at the, at the bema seat of judgment as Christians and he will evaluate our life. And he will say, Jerry, you spent all those days playing golf and never gave me a thought. Except you prayed to have a good shot. You know, that's a, you know it, it, and that'll burn. Oh, that's going to burn. But he'll say, there's some days you went and played and you rejoiced and the scenery, and the companionship, and, and, the physical, and the physical strength I gave you to walk there, and, and that is to my glory. He'll say to me, some days, Jerry, when you got up to preach, and you did it for your own glory, and that burns. But if you did it for my glory, the days you did it for my glory, those are rewarded. And he's going to do that with every interaction of my life, with my spouse, with my children, with my grandchildren, with you. I'm going to, give, I'm going to, I'm going to be evaluated. I start to say give an account, but it's not giving an account. But it's being evaluated for every word, every deed, every motive. And I'll be rewarded for those I did in loving him and for his sake. And the others will be burned. And it's going to be true with you as well. It behooves us to trust Him. It behooves us to be obedient. It behooves us to humble ourselves in His presence and in the presence of others. One of the Bible in the New Testament tells us to prefer others above ourselves. You prefer others above yourself, you don't sin against them. You, you don't bear grudges. You don't hate them. You, 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 you honor the Lord for Christ's sake. We do it for Christ's sake. I'm just preaching to you now and I'm preaching to myself. If we just realize, you know, that that's possible for us to do that because of Christ. The mockery of the cross, um, verse 32, they said that Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatia, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Excuse me. And some who stood there, stood by when they heard that, said, Look, he's calling for Elijah, because in the Hebrew it sounded like that. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone see and let him see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. What he cried out then with a loud voice is that, tell us that it is finished. It is finished. And what was finished, the payment for sin was finished. And he said that and he gave up his spirit. It's what we read in John. When he, when he gave up his spirit, see, he, he was not... He, he did not die from his physical 
pains and his physical weakness, and he had that, but he gave up his spirit. You remember Jesus told his disciples, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. No one took his life. He laid it down. He laid his life down at willingly. And then we read this. Uh, then the veil of the temple, then the veil, in verse 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And again, that's great theological significance there. The veil of the temple, if you remember, there was the, there was the courtyards and then there was the holy place. Uh, and they, you know, the holy, so they would, the, the holy place was the first part of the actual temple building itself. And then there was the Holy of Holies beyond that. And there was a veil to go in the holy place. There was a veil to go into the Holy of Holies. And priests could go in and out of the holy place, but they could not, they could not go in the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies was a square room, and it included the ark. And the ark had contained the presence of God. Now, it didn't contain all the presence of God, but God had told the children of Israel that he would meet with them there. And the high priest would go once, once a year after doing all this, all, all these rituals to cleanse himself and then go, I'm sure with fear and trembling, he would go through the veil or under the veil or around the veil and go in and put the blood sacrifice, sprinkle it on the ark. And the sins of the nation of Israel would be rolled forward, not forgiven, but rolled forward. I wish we had the time you could go into Acts, Acts, and Paul says that God overlooked the sins of the nations. And then you go into Romans, I think it's chapter what, 3, maybe. And it talks about that God winked at those sins. And, 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 and what happened is that nobody's sin was ever totally forgiven until Christ died. But again, that's a whole theological lesson that we can't get into this morning. But nobody's sins was totally forgiven. They were just rolled forward awaiting the death of Christ. God didn't hold them accountable for them and take vengeance upon their sin because they went through this ritual sacrifice. And the Gentiles who may have known him, who were not Jewish, had this contrition in their heart because that's what God desired is a contrived heart toward him. You remember? And the Jews, it was the moral law. For a Gentile, it was the law written on their heart. And their sin, if they believed in their, the God and knowing that somehow they were responsible to him, God rolled their sin forward until Christ came. And so no one could go in and have to the access with God. No one had access to God. And then God rent that veil into himself. How did he do it? He used, I mean, he, you know, have hands. He did have, he spoke it. He spoke it. And that veil was rent. And, and what happened, it means that the access to God was there. I'm going to read you out of Hebrews. And uh, he, in Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 11, there's a little more, but we don't have time for that. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of uh, this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then in chapter 10 and verse 19, we read this. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest 
That's the holy place. That's where God resides. Having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised it is faithful. So Judaism ended that day. As far as God was concerned, Judaism ended. There was no need for any other sacrifices, any other ceremonial law, because Christ was the fulfillment of that law. Now, the Jews didn't quit practicing it. I'm sure they repaired the curtain and went right on. But it was over. It was done. And I'm going to harp on this just a little bit. Today, there's a movement among Christianity that you're more spiritual if you practice some of the Judaistic rituals in your life. And if, if you give in to that and the people give it, they're mocking Christ. Those things are over. Christ, Christ is the fulfillment of that. And, and if, if you continue seeing that, and again, I'm not going to talk about Roman Catholic people. I'm going to talk about Roman Catholic doctrine. Every time they do a mass, they're putting Christ to death. And it is a horrid to the Holy Spirit to do that. And it's happened millions and millions of times since Christ died. It is a horror to the Holy Spirit. Once for all, Christ died once for all, is what he was telling. Once for all. Once for all didn't mean once for all the people. It meant one time. He died one time for all time. It's over, it's done. The sacrifice has been paid. He is the Lamb of God before the foundation of the world. There's only one, and there's only one death and he died in this time that we're reading about, and it never needs to be repeated. It never is repeated. And so I, I grieve that Catholic people who, 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 who love Christ are so deceived about that. I, I, I meet, sometimes I talk to Catholic people, I meet playing golf or, or wherever, I met them, delivered meals, and you know, and, and, and they believe in Jesus Christ, and they trust in him, and that's all there is, you know, and they're, but, but, but sometimes we, when we're taught wrong theology, we do wrong practices, and it grieves the Holy Spirit within us. doesn't mean we lose our salvation. I, I pray and hope that there are millions and millions of Catholic people who are trusting not in what the church teaches, but they're trusting in Christ alone. And I think there are many who do in spite of what the church teaches. But if they're trusting from Mother Teresa to the Pope, if they're trusting in what the Catholic, te- what, what the Catholic Church teaches as doctrine, they're lost because it's works. It's a work salvation. And I say that not with any kind of pride. I say that with, with, with a... You know, with a, a compassion toward those people who are led astray, and it's satanic. There are onlookers to the cross. We'll deal with that in just finishing this chapter. The onlookers was first the centurion. We read that um, in verse thirty-nine. Uh, we already talked about him. Um, verse thirty-nine. When the centurion who stood opposite him saw. 
that he cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. That's the first Gentile, say, we'd rather have Galatians. That's the purpose of the cross, is the covenant to Abraham that people of all uh, persuasions of all time and all nations would be brought to Christ. And then there were the women, verse 30, verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph and, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him from Jerusalem. I was reading one commentary, and, and, uh, and Donald English, and he, he said it's really interesting that when you go through the book of Mark, and you see that the people who testified to Christ were, were the people who were on the fringes. John the Baptist. He said John the Baptist was an eccentric. You know, and only the people who were repentant believed in John the Baptist. Everybody else thought him was kind of a, a weird guy. You know, remember, Herod thought Jesus might be John the Baptist reincarnated, and he, he thought he was a show. He wanted to see him because he was weird enough, he thought he was a show. But he testified to Christ. And then he talked about Lazarus testified to Christ. He talked about the uh, he, he talked about the man who was demonic, who uh, couldn't be controlled. He testified to Christ. And then he said this, ladies, I don't want to offend you, but I want to lift you up. He talked about it was the women who in their society were of no importance. They testified to Christ. We just read that here. They followed him. They ministered to him. What ministry means is that they, they provided out of their substance they, they provided, they probably provided, like, like women do for most of us, they probably provided clean clothes, and they probably provided food, they probably provided um, just the provision of life. They made it possible for him to have a ministry that, that wasn't chaotic. And it's really interesting, when he said, you go through Mark and you see that it's all these people on the fringe who walked with Christ, trusted him, believed in him, testified to him, and it wasn't the important people. You know, the disciples were wandering around, and I'm not, be, I'm not being critical of them. They're, they're following him, but they were questioning as they went along. They were questioning things about, okay, what's going to, what, how important are we going to be? When's the kingdom going to come? When, when's, when's this going to happen? When are we going to be exalted? How, 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 you know, how, what place will I have when, when I'm exalted? And then we come to the burial really quickly. Uh, verse 42, And when evening had come, because it was a preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, this is Friday afternoon, Joseph Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, that's an euthanism for salvation, he trusted Christ, he coming and taking courage, which means it wasn't his nature but now he's taking courage and goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Christ. Most of the people who were crucified were thrown out. They were just thrown out on the, on, in the valley of Guiana and left their bodies left to rot. And that was part of the punishment. If anyone was going to be taken down and buried by the family, they had to get permission from the Roman government. But he goes and gets permission. He takes courage. Now, why do you have to take courage? Because for one thing, Jesus was literally crucified as a, as a rebel, as a dissenter against Rome, being a, having a kingdom, and, and even though Pilate knew it wasn't true, 
but that's what the Romans would think, and he's identifying with Christ. And also, he's going against, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, but he's going against the Sanhedrin themselves. He's going against the Jewish leadership of his own people, and he's finally saying, I'm taking courage, I'm going to do what's right. I don't know what it'll cost me financially, I don't know what it'll cost me uh, economically in my, uh, my business or my associations, I, I don't know if it'll cost me my position on the Sanhedrin, but I'm going to take courage and I'm going to do what's right. Uh, Spurgeon said that we ought to take a lesson from that, that we ought to determine in our heart, I'm going to do what's right. I don't care what it costs me, I'm going to do what's right. I don't care if it's embarrassing for me, I'm going to do what's right. I, I don't care if it costs me money, I'm going to do what's right. Uh, if it costs me position or prestige, I'm going to do what's right. And I think we, we, we should. Well, he takes him, the body, uh, and he takes him to his own tomb. Uh, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. He sent the centurion or asked him. He said, yes. Uh, verse 46, then they brought the linen, and we, we know that uh, Josephus, who, who is it from John chapter 3? Nicodemus is with him as well. Uh, he brought the linen, took him down, wrapped him in linen, he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of a rock. We learned that's, that's Joseph's own, that's his own tomb, uh, and rolled the stone against the door. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. So he's buried. And the Bible says he was, he was crucified with the transgressors. He was buried with the rich. It's what prophecy, and it, it come to pass. There are people who say that Mark looked at the events and, went and, and he, he manufactured these things to match the prophecies. But there's something like, I don't know, three... Uh, I remember it was 300 or 3,000 prophecies about Christ... And no one could match them but Christ himself. So pray with me and, and we'll go. What, what a great thing the Lord did on our behalf. How, how grateful it should make us. How, how it should humble us. Our Father, we bow before you this morning and we want to express collectively our gratitude. You, you died in our place. Lord, we were undeserving. We could never be deserving. Lord, we, we have these... Uh, wicked, uh, sinful, selfish thoughts and behaviors and actions and, and have done so since the day we were born and yet you have freely forgiven us, Lord, without reproach, without rec- recrimination. Lord, you've accepted us. You, you made us a part of your family. You've adopted us into your family. It, it could, you could do no more for us than what you've done and it all came through the cross and your suffering and you're being willing to be rejected by the Father, and we're grateful. I pray that as we read these passages, it would cause us to, uh, Lord, humble our heart and to, 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 to express our gratitude to you from the depth of our soul. And we do that this morning. In Christ's name, amen.